Football MX Network production. Josie's on a vacation far away. Come around and talk it over. So many things that I want to say. A new view from inside the truck. X racer to racer and eye to eye. A casual look into the personalities of the sport and an experienced perspective into the action from week to week. It's Jason Thomas's Industry Seating. Presented by Pirelli Tires, Fly Racing, Blends All Racing Motor Oil, Works Connection, Plum Creek Funding, 612 Suspension, Fast Foundry, and Pro Glow. Welcome to the Industry Seating Podcast. My name is Jason Thomas and I am your host. Today, we will be talking about the Supercross de Paris, and that's Paris for us Americans, uh, that happened over the weekend. They had a big uh, practice night on, uh, I guess it was Friday night there, uh, afternoon for us, and then, uh, yeah, they kind of raced all throughout the day on Saturday. The timing was a little weird. I'm used to them racing, you know, pretty the opening ceremonies would be late in the afternoon and then they would race into the night pretty late that was always my experience with this event that's kind of not how it was I mean they were racing in the morning which was their afternoon and then it it seemed like it wrapped up somewhat early and maybe I have my time off but that's what it felt like Um, you know typically opening ceremonies you know I'm in I'm in Boise watching this I was at uh at home most of the day and then I was watching practice from the office on Friday but the racing was in the morning here, and typically opening ceremonies would be around you know, 11 a.m. Boise time, which would be 7 p.m. Paris time. And then they would race until, I don't know, 11 p.m. Paris time, let's say, maybe even midnight. Sometimes we raced really late there. It just didn't have that feel. I, I don't remember what time the last event was going off, but I feel like it was pretty early in the morning. So I don't know if that was because of COVID, if they have some sort of restrictions in place on curfew I don't know that answer maybe they just wanted to give people time to get home or the riders time to tear bikes down to get out of there for uh, their flight home on Sunday because in the past we would race multiple days and, and the Sunday race of the you know the final race of the weekend on Sunday would be in the afternoon which would give us time to tear bikes down get everything situated we could have a nice dinner at the hotel together on Sunday night. So maybe, and I'm, I'm totally hypothesizing this, maybe they wanted to have that same dynamic somewhat in place uh, to not push it so late into, uh, into Saturday night. But anyway, that was just one observation I had is that it's, it felt like a little bit early for a Saturday night event. The sponsors of the podcast, Pirelli Tires, Plum Creek Funding, Guts Racing, Grandstone Boots Pro Glow Wash. Got to spend some time with Ryan Humphrey and the Pro Glow guys at Dallas uh, Dallas Cowboys game a, a few weeks ago. That was such an awesome time. Uh, Works Connection. Use a promo code JT21 at checkout. Fast Foundry can uh, can really help your small business needs. Of course, if you have a larger business too, but I, I think it really uh, can get your small small business much more efficient than it probably is, especially if you're inexperienced in that arena. And then of course, Fly Racing. So. Let's jump into this race. Uh, I was excited for it. You know, there hasn't really been much going on. As we know, you know, the MXGP series ended uh, a couple weeks ago now. 
and it's been pretty quiet. You know, the, uh, the Supercross world is in full prep mode. You know, these guys are going through boot camp, and I've been writing a little bit about that on Racerhead, on RacerX. If you've been uh, reading that at all, you've seen my contributions there. But it's a really tough time as far as workload for these guys. And you shouldn't feel sorry for them, right? They have what most would consider one of the best jobs on earth. You know, there, there's a lot of risk and a lot of downsides and a lot of that too. But for a lot of people, that's their dream would be to race Supercross. And right now is the most difficult aspect of that. They are putting in hard days and hard yards to use a cliche. Um, it's just all day long. You know, you wake up just you know, to get off topic a little bit, just an idea of what their typical day entails, you know, they'll get up pretty early, whatever, six o'clock, seven o'clock. I would say six o'clock. And I like to use some of the structured boot camp that I've seen. I've actually witnessed in person. So I would say for those guys, they're getting up six, six thirty, maybe, um, have coffee. If you're so inclined for me is that's mandatory. And then you are at, uh, the gym typically by seven, seven thirty. Okay. Maybe, you know, sometime in that time frame, I'm sure there's a set time that they have to be there by, especially on like an Alden Baker program. Like that program runs to the minute. You know, it's not military. It's not like someone's screaming at you, but they really run a tight ship as far as timing to make sure that they get all the things done. So let's say you're there 730 and you start stretching and that early morning stretch is a big part of the routine. They'll do some yoga. They do a lot of stretching. I don't know exactly the the exercises involved, but it's, it's not like they're in there, you know, going for max bench press, you know, they're not trying to set personal records on clean and jerk. You know, that's, that's not what's happening. It's, it's much more about core strength, stretching, increasing agility, uh, you know, preparing for crash type stuff, right. To stay loose. There, there's a lot of that going on in the gym. They, they do do lifting as well. There is some of that, but it's not this, you know, it's not like Gold's Gym where guys are throwing weights around and, and all this, you know, uh, guys grunting and all that. That's not what's happening. It's a, it's a much different experience than that. But they're, let's say they're in there for an hour, you know, they, an hour and a half, whatever, doing these things. And it's not this crazy workload, but it is, I think, pretty influential. And it's a nice way to start their day, get loosened up. Then they're at the track by, let's say, 9, 9.30. You know, basically they would go straight from the gym probably eat something either they would either go home eat something quickly eat on the way or eat at the track one of those three things is happening but it's you know a light meal they're not eating a lot right a couple eggs maybe oatmeal not not much and a lot of times they don't even take in carbs during boot camp really at all Uh, so it would probably be something high protein there and quick and light because they're going to be riding quickly so be at the track riding by 9 9 30 10 at the absolute latest they're riding by and the riding is obviously, you know, you want to exude the most energy you want to focus on riding. That's why, you know, that's what they do for a living. That's, and I've seen that in the past and I, I've probably been guilty too, is you lose focus a little bit and you start thinking you're a professional bicyclist or a gym rat or something like your emphasis should be on your motorcycle and you should be, you know, cornering your energy around being on your motorcycle. And I think Alden does a really good job of that. You know, the riding is pretty intense. You have a pretty strict schedule. You're doing these laps, these sprints, you know, working on these sections and it's all mapped out. It's all to structure. You know, there's, there's not a lot of wasted movement and they do it. It becomes like clockwork. You know, they are 
really in tune with what's going to happen and you do it day in and day out. So there's a, there's a flow to it and a rhythm to where they don't have to think about it. You know, Alden says, okay, we're doing this and you go do that. And you're always trying to match lap times. Each rider will have someone there with a stopwatch and they're giving you the lap time and you are trying to constantly stay on that second. And how they would measure the second, you'll do a few sprint laps before your moto to set your time. Say, you know, your sprint is uh, 59, right? 59 second lap time. Well, during your, you know, eight lap, 10 lap, 12 lap, 20 lap, whatever the time frame is for the next moto you're going to do, you need to be within that second, right? That's what you're gauging yourself off of. And the race is going to be no different. You know what the lap times are that you really need to be on because you've went through practice after practice after practice and heat race and for me, LCQ. And then, you know, main event time, you know what the times are, you know where you need to be. And instead of thinking about positions and all these other things, you just focus on your lap times. So you are creating positive habits and you're creating this robotic function, which I always refer to Alden Baker in that way, is he creates robots. And on race day, he just turns them on and they execute the same thing that they've been doing for months on end. So there's not a lot of thinking that needs to go on. You are programmed to go perform. You know that, you know, you figure out the lap time you need to be on, you're in shape, you've got your sprint laps down, you've got your motos down, you've got all these things, and then it's just go execute the game plan. So anyway, you do your riding, it's pretty intense, there's a lot of energy, uh, you know, expended during that riding time. And you're usually done by, I'm going to say two or three, that's a pretty fair time, because you're going to be eating in there a little bit too, like they're taking in calories, but it's a, you know, three to four hour window that they would get their riding in. You know, there's someone working on the track, someone watering the track. All those variables are taken out of the equation. These guys are there to do one simple job, and that is to ride their motorcycle, right? They're not working on their bike. They're not working on the track. You know, when they come in, they're probably watching the video of that moto. They're looking at the lap times. Somebody, you know, somebody wrote down every single lap throughout that moto, and they're figuring out where they were slow, where they were fast. They could be looking at Lit Pro to figure out their lines because they are really practicing for what the race day will be like. This is a, a really, it's a, a rehearsal for what race day will be. And yes, there are a lot of other things happening that aren't going to mimic race day, you know, working on sections and working on those things, starts and all those things. But in your motos, you are replicating what the race will be like. So finally finish riding. You know, you're pretty tired by this point, two or three they would likely go home for, let's say, sometimes they don't even go home. Sometimes they will just rest and then go immediately to uh, the bicycle ride. But when I say go home, it's because they will leave their house for the bicycle ride most times. So you would drive home, change clothes, put your cycling kit on, and then they would go pretty quickly thereafter to go on the bike ride. And so now you're that four o'clock, five o'clock window they would go for at least an hour. Usually if it's the off season, you're looking at a two or three hour bike ride, which sucks, right? So you're into this non, uh, daylight savings timeframe. So you got to get started pretty quickly. Really. You got to be going by like four at the latest. So let's say between three and four, Alden's going to be cracking the whip to get on your bicycle. You're going to go for two to three hours. That puts you right up till dark. You know, it's getting dark at six o'clock in Florida, pretty much, or at least on a bicycle, you don't want to be on the roads at dusk. Like that's really dangerous. So that's it. Like then you get off your bicycle, let's say five, six o'clock. 
you're done. Like, thankfully, you're done. Some guys will even stretch after that just to try to flush some, some lactic acid from the day. But from 7 a.m. until 6 o'clock at night, you're kind of going. And don't get me wrong, there is some downside in there. It's not just like, go, 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 go. But there is always a purpose, and you're on the clock. You know, Alden has all these things scheduled out to the minute. You know, your, your rest in between motos is timed purposefully. You know, there is a method to the madness because he wants you to exert energy for this amount of laps, come in, rest, recover. And he's, he's setting these things similar to what a race would be. So you have this recovery time and then your body is learning that, okay, I, I put out this, all this energy was sitting on the limit of my heart rate. And, you know, I was building lactic acid and I was on my limit, whatever each person's limit is, as far as cardiovascular output, VO2 max, all those things, right? They were touching it in these sprints. Stop, recover, and then your body is learning, okay, now I got to go again. I am, you know, my body, I'm expected to go again right now and I need to be able to push again. So all those things, you are programming your body to be able to respond when it's called upon on race day. So I don't know how I got that far off topic. It just felt like it was the, the right timing as far as this boot camp is going on right now, but it is a brutal undertaking. And that was one day. There's a lot of work in those few topics I discussed. Like it all day long, you're just going, 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 sweating, working, your body hurts, you're sore. Everything you can imagine is chafed, like your butt, you have monkey butt from riding so much, your legs are sore, everything hurts. You know, blisters, if you're running, like sometimes people run instead of bicycle, depending on who you work with. Like some people are big on running. Alden's huge on cycling, right? He wants uh, to take some of that stress off your joints, non-impact uh, work. And he also wants to be able to set a heart rate and hold it, which cycling is very easy to do on flats, especially in Florida. It's easy to just set a heart rate and sit right on that, that heart rate. So anyway, uh, that's kind of what those guys are going through day after day after day. And they do take some days off, right? Um, I don't know exactly how Alden has his daily routine dialed in as far as like days of work, days of rest. But to give you some sort of reference, when I was working with Tim Ferry, his coach uh, name is Dean Golich. He was uh, on Lance Armstrong's uh, team as far as work goes. So he had, he's brilliant, right? All these medical and training degrees and just a genius. You know, he did all of Lance's um, blood work. When Lance would get blood work, Dean would help analyze it. So the guy knows more about training and that side of it than I'll ever pretend to even come close to. Um, he would make us do long story short, he would make us do three days on two days off. And that would go on for a few months. And it doesn't sound like you would really need two full days off, but I'm telling you after three full days in a row, those two days, you were just begging for them because we were doing, when I was on that program, we were doing three 30 lap motos, on super on a supercross track, uh, and that's ridiculous. I mean, it, it was great. Like it put a, it pushed us to a level of fitness that I I've only had a few times in my life, and you know that was the riding part. Then we were doing three hour bicycle rides on top of that, and we didn't do a lot of gym work. The gym work was pretty light on that program, but three thirty lap motos plus 
a three-hour bicycle ride in one day, um, you can start to think about how much energy you were expending and how badly you needed those two days off. Because theoretically, when you started, you know, you go three on, you, you'd be just dead going into the two days off. And when those two days off, like I would, you would spin out and we'd say spin out. You just ride your stationary bicycle for, you know, 30 minutes, an hour each day, just cruising. I'm not saying hard at all. I'm saying cruising just to flush some lactic acid. You would want to be somewhat fresh again to start that three day run. If you weren't, you were in for hell, you know, because it was everything you had to get through those three days. Uh, and then before you got your two day break again. So I don't know if that's similar to what Alding has going on. I'm sure there is rest incorporated in there. I just don't know if it's that in that same way or not. Now I haven't seen those guys get two days off very often. So I bet it's set up differently there. Maybe it's two on one off or so. I don't, I don't know, but uh, rest is, is really, really important. So I don't want you to think they're just going seven days a week never ending. You can't do that. You have to allow your body to rest some that that's, you know, rest is, I don't want to say just as important as the work. I I think that's overstating it. I I hear that cliche. I don't believe that to be true, but it is very, very important. Uh, Rest is a critical ingredient of any training program. So enough about that. I just wanted to touch on what the industry is going through right now and why it's so quiet. You don't hear a lot from guys because it's just suffer fest every single day. They're just just buried in hard work, but that allows for all of the the great performances we see, you know, from January all the way through May, all of that base foundation and the abilities and fitness and just, you know, performance, as I mentioned, is built right now. You know, you'll see the results later, but it's all because of the work put in right now. So let's jump into Supercross de Paris, which I... This is what the whole podcast was be about. I just spent uh, 15 minutes talking about boot camp, which I didn't plan on. But anyway, Paris, for me, you know, I love Paris. Let's start there. As a city, there is so much to see. Um, there's a really special atmosphere there. And I know there's this kind of negative connotation with Paris because a lot of, the, a lot of Parisians don't like Americans and there's this kind of bad vibe between us and them. Uh, and you will run into that. Don't get me wrong. It's, that's not a complete farce. You will run into people that are rude. Now, a lot of the time when I've seen that, it's because me or another American, I really got away from it. I learned my lesson and, and learned, kind of learned why this was happening. But I will see other Americans, they make no attempt to communicate in French at all, which I understand they don't speak French, but make an effort, right? Try to use some sort of keyword in French, like learn, right? Learn a little bit or learn, slow your speaking down. If you can only speak English, slow down a little bit, because if that French person speaks a tiny bit of English and they're trying to, you know, it's a taxi driver or a waiter or whatever, if they only speak a little bit of English and you speak normally like you would to me or your wife or your husband or whoever, they have no chance of understanding you, right? So they're just going to immediately blow you off because they didn't understand a word you said. And then if you get frustrated because they don't understand, they're going to get frustrated because you're frustrated and it's just, it gets, it gets ugly quickly, right? And I've seen that so many times. And in my experience, if you just slow down, you make an attempt you try to point to something, you try to explain 
you learn a little bit of French. How about that? Learn a couple of French words. Like it's not going to kill you. Um, I know a little bit of a bunch of languages because I think it's really helps you get around when you're new to the country. Um, but working past all that, I would highly recommend visiting Paris. Just, you know, I've actually never been to the Louvre, as crazy as that sounds. I just didn't want to stand in those lines. But going to Notre Dame, and there's literally, there's just things all around the city to see. You know, you can't walk anywhere without finding some sort of monument or some sort of uh, throwback to yesteryear that we just don't have a lot of that in America because it's, it's a younger country. We just don't have these historical sites as much, right? And, you know, you go to uh, Versailles and there's just a lot to take in and a lot to see. And even if you just walk up to like a roadside cafe, have a cup of coffee, have a glass of wine, whatever, whichever, you know, whatever your fancy and just chill out, it's a pretty cool place to be. So if you've never been, highly recommend it. I would, I would suggest going there. The next time Motocross of Nations is in France, which I don't know if it's next year or the year after, uh, 23 or 24. It will be back soon. I would suggest flying to Paris, stay a day or two, see things, drive to the race. It'll be, I don't know, three, four, five hours, probably to the, uh, the west coast of France because that's where St. John d'Angeli and Erne are both on that western coast. Drive over, take it all in, see the race, spend the weekend, drive back to Paris, see another day or two, and then fly home. You, you can make a week out of it, right? If you left on, let's say, Tuesday, you would arrive Wednesday into Paris, get in, you would arrive Wednesday morning. You know, you probably need a nap, but you could see most of the day Wednesday, definitely have dinner and cruise around at, you know, evening time, Paris, Wednesday night, do a full day Thursday, drive to Motocross Nations Friday, take that all in, get your passes, get dialed in. You're there for Saturday, Sunday for the race. After the race, either stay there or drive back to Paris Sunday night. Typically, we would drive back Sunday night. Do a whole day again Monday. See what you didn't get to see. Really enjoy the city with no agenda on Monday and then fly back Tuesday. And that's a full week. I get it. A week is a long time. But if you're going to fly to Europe and you're on vacation, you might as well do a whole week, right? Otherwise, you're, you're going to be rushing it. Uh, so just way off topic. I didn't even plan on talking about that, but I would recommend that. I do get asked that sometimes. They're like, what do you suggest? And that's, that's really what I would suggest. So the race itself, you know, it used to be Bercy. I raced it several times in Bercy is just like a suburb of Paris. I don't even say it's a suburb. It's just a small area of, it's like a borough, right? If you're in New York, it could be like the Bronx or it would be like Brooklyn or whatever. It's just this area inside Paris. And I never really knew that going over there, but that's totally what it is. It's just a part of it. Cause you're always like, man, I feel like I'm in Paris. Well, yeah, you are in Paris. It's just a part of a section of Paris. Now they've moved the race to this newer arena. I think it's like law Def- defense arena or something, whatever. Just, it's just a name for the arena, but it's much bigger. It's more like a supercross style stadium. It's, it's not, it doesn't have the bowl like we would have a stadium. It's more like a conference hall type, like arena cross ish, but bigger. 
And yeah, just much bigger track and area than what I raced in in Bercy, which Bercy was like a, almost like a hockey arena. It's bigger than that, but still pretty small track. It was very, very much arena cross. Um, but I think it's, it's closer to Supercross now than it used to be as far as the setup and the, the building and all that stuff. But, you know, I think the, the big topic for the race was there were no whoops, right? And, and I want to start there because I think that set up everything that happened throughout the weekend, why guys did, you know, better or worse than they might have. It's just really hard to overlook the fact that a supercross race doesn't have whoops. And I think they had to do it that way because if you're going to ask Jeffrey Hurlings, which he was originally on the docket, he didn't end up going. But if you're going to ask guys like that, you know, Roman Febra did end up going, Tony Cairoli did end up going. I don't think they're going to go if they're going to have supercross style whoops on the track. I just don't believe that. Now, maybe if you offered them enough money, they would, but you're setting them up for failure. You're going to make them look worse than they should on it because they don't ride supercross whoops. They don't practice them. They have no experience, you know, within reason, not any real experience with supercross whoops. And a guy like Brayton or Chad Reed, or they're going to annihilate them in those sections. They would go by them like they were standing still because They've been through whoops literally a million times. You know, that's not even an exaggeration. They've hit whoops millions of times in their life. You figured tens of thousands of laps of Supercross each year, times year after year after year. Um, you know, these guys have hit whoops a million times. Two or three whoop sections of track on practice tracks. Start doing the math and you get to my number pretty quickly. So I think that was a prerequisite to get MXGP guys to show up. But I think it changed the racing. You know, you look at Marv. We know that Marv has had problems in the whoops in the past. I'm not saying he's terrible at them because he's not. But if you're assessing him, that's been a weak point in his Supercross career over time. That's just a fact. And when you take that out of the equation, man, his, his likelihood of winning really goes up. And he dominated. Make no mistake. He absolutely dominated this event. He was never really challenged. On any front, he got the starts. No one really pushed him at all. You know, I think the closest anybody really was was in the second race when Febra was kind of back there, and then Febra has this huge injury. That was really it. That was the only time Marv likely felt any pressure whatsoever, and it wasn't even really pressure then. He was just somewhat close to him. So, incredible look for Marv. He's been working with David Villeneuve for about three months now, and I don't know what to attribute. You know, it's it's easy to to get carried away and say, oh man, Villeman's making the difference. Look what he did for Ferrandis. Look what he's doing for Marvin. Marv's going to be a threat to win the title. To me, pump the brakes, right? He looked great. That's awesome. I think he'll be good, right? He won the second to last round last year. So he was clearly ramping up towards the end. But to, to get carried away from a one-off race with no whoops and none of the real Supercross stars there, to me, would be silly. So congrats to Marv. Lots of work to go, but it, it certainly had to have helped his confidence as we, we inch closer and closer to, uh, to Anaheim. Now, the track, I kind of mentioned it. It was okay. It was kind of like a mix between Arena Cross and Supercross without whoops. You know, it was almost like a futures type. Uh, Daniel Blair, I thought, made a good comment. It was like a futures track for Supercross. Had some rhythm sections. Nothing too crazy. Everything was fairly forgiving, um, but it was, you know, Supercross-ish. 
So uh, I didn't think they did a too bad of a job. It's a really tough ask to get a track that's going to be okay for MXGP guys that never ride Supercross and then also challenge the American Supercross regulars. Like, how do you find a balance there? So I thought, I thought they did a pretty good job there. Uh, Subarus, second. Cedric Subarus gets second overall, beats Justin Brayton. Really impressive. Great job from him. And for those of you who aren't really familiar with Subarus, he's been around forever. This is a guy I raced, and he was kind of next. Uh, there were a couple guys... Uh, Florent Richier, who you guys have probably never heard of, he pretty much took the reins from me, um, along with Bowers. Bowers was in there too. They took the reins from me when I left uh, in 2012 because I was winning a lot. I had won the 29, uh, 2009 championship. Then Gerke beat me in 2010. Um, and then I, they didn't actually have a championship in 11, but you know, 2006, 2007, oh, actually in 05, 06, 07, I was winning a lot won the championships. Oh, nine, I won. And then I was getting old, you know, in 29, uh, 2009, I turned 30 and it, you know, I could see the end coming, but this next group, Richier was a little bit younger than me. He started winning. Bowers moved in, started winning. Gerke was there, but then Subarus to my, you know, the larger point here, Subarus was coming in. So 10, 11, 12, Subarus showed up and he was just a kid, right? He wasn't someone I'd ever really worried about, but his form was evident really straight away. And I remember my last couple of races, uh, Munich and Dortmund, he was a problem for me. Uh, Munich, he just beat me straight up. I was trying to catch him, crashed. Uh, he was first, I was second. I crashed out of the race trying to catch him. And then um, he actually didn't go to Dortmund. Chisholm came and Chisholm beat me. I got He got First, I got second, but I'm Subarus would have been right in the mix too. So to see him still right here at this level, you know, 11 or I guess nine years from then, but, you know, 10, 11, 12 years past when I first started seeing him come around is really impressive. You could see how happy he was. For those of you who watched the race and afterwards, he was so thrilled to get second on that stage and beat the Americans and all that stuff. Uh, so really cool for him. I was really happy for him. Uh, he was always really nice to me, always raced me really cleanly, which I, you know, I respected and appreciated, but cool race for, uh, for Cedric Sabaris. Brayton, uh, he was all right, nothing terrible. And, and if you know anything about Justin Brayton, you know, he is a force at these off season races. So I think most people expected more, you know, I think a lot of people expected him to win. I had Marvin pick to win. And I was proven right there, you know, group text and all these things. I just thought Marvin would come in at a French race and get it done on, you know, factory bike, all those things. Like that stuff matters at these races to have your real factory bike there. And yeah, he, he did. But Brayton, I thought rode okay. You know, he gets taken out by Caroli in the last corner, which was really unfortunate because that's not Tony's style really at all. And if you're watching it and you're being really neutral to it. What happened is Brayton didn't want to knock Subarus down, right? They're in a French race. It's all start money. He doesn't want to knock Cedric down in front of his home crowd. He's doing everything humanly possible to avoid knocking him down. And Cedric's not really giving up the line either, which I don't think he's, he's not supposed to, right? It's racing, but Brayton probably should have just gone in and gotten more aggressive. I, I think you just had, he just had to. And I think in hindsight, he realizes that now, man, I just, I took too long. I should have 
not waited till the end. You know, halfway, I was all over him. I should have just bumped him a little bit and got it done. And if the crowd freaks out, they freak out. But he's, you know, think about Justin Brayton. He's really close with Eric Pernard, who is the promoter of this event and Geneva and events in Australia and all over the world. He doesn't want to knock down a French rider at a French event with a French promoter. Like, you just don't want to do that. And I know that's in what was in the back of Brayton's mind the whole time. The problem was he didn't realize that Cairoli had closed up to them because of all the cat and mouse stuff that went on the last lap and a half. And he swings out wide to try to cut down and make a last-ditch effort on Subaris. Well, guess what? Cairoli has now positioned himself on that inside. And Brayton didn't know it. He just didn't feel him, didn't hear him. So it was like the worst possible scenario because Cairoli thinks that Brayton knows he's there. Brayton doesn't know he's there, doesn't know he's there. So Brayton goes to cut down hard and cuts right into Cairoli as Cairoli's still climbing up the berm. And it looks like to, you know, if, if you're just looking at it in a vacuum and you don't know a lot about racing, you, you would think that Cairoli went in there and blasted Brayton out of the way and knocked him down. That, that's really not what happened, in my opinion, and I would tell Justin Brayton this too. My opinion what happened, Cairoli went in to make a block pass. Brayton didn't know he was there, and Brayton turns down hard, much harder than Cairoli ever thought would happen. And boom, they make hard contact because of... You know, Brayton's, Brayton doesn't know. So Brayton's going to make this pass attempt on Subaris. He's still thinking about Cedric at this point. Yeah, that's the most critical part. He's not thinking or even, you know, Cairoli's uh, not even in his thought process, really. He's thinking about how do I make this pass in the last corner and pull off a miracle? Well, Cairoli's already closed the gap, and, and that's out of the question, much unbeknownst to Brayton. So, Last corner, big contact. Brayton goes down. You immediately see Cairoli throw his hand up, and he's like, oh, crap. Like, I can't believe I just knocked Brayton down at a race. We're all getting start money. This doesn't mean anything, and I just knocked him down. So I'm sure Cairoli felt like crap. He, it wasn't intentional, in my opinion. Yes, he wanted to make the pass. Yes, he wanted to make a, black pa- a block pass, but knocking him down, absolutely not. For one... That's not how Tony rides. Like He's not a guy that goes in and takes people out. Certainly not at a race that doesn't really mean anything. You know, it wasn't for third overall. He, he DNF'd the first race of the day. Like, he was out of the overall completely, right? None of that even mattered. He just wanted to make the pass, and then it all went wrong. So that's my take on it. It sucked for Brayton to go down. It didn't change anything. If Brayton didn't pass Subarus, he wasn't beating him for the overall anyway. So he needed to get him like that. That's what that battle was all about was second overall. So it didn't really change a lot. Um, it just sucks to see Braden go down. I know he was pissed. I know he didn't want to get knocked down. You always worry about injuries at races like these where there's, you know, it's just start money. You're just putting on a show and then to get taken out like that, you could hurt yourself. That's a, definitely a reason to get mad. Um, but I think in hindsight, it's all fine. I would assume that Cairoli apologized. I don't know. But um, that's kind of the, the person that Cairoli is. But anyway, uh, that's kind of how that went. Now, the real crappy story, bad news of the event was Roman Febra shows up, just lost a world championship, and freaking breaks his leg at this race. Now, it's come out in news today that he only broke his tibia. 
So he didn't break tib-fib, which some people are saying. A lot of other people are saying he broke his femur. It was actually neither of those. It was a single bone break in his tibia, which it's still bad, right? You're like 85 days away from the first round in England, assuming the schedule stays the same. That's not a lot of time, right? So he's going to have to take time off. It's not as bad as I originally thought. So depending on what the diagnosis is as far as treatment, maybe he'll be okay. But there's no way, I mean, it's, it's just not possible for him, for it not to affect him. Because he's going to have to take time off. He's going to have to heal. He's going to have to do therapy. That just pushes timelines back, right? As far as testing, he's switching teams. Remember this Kawasaki team went from KRT Kawasaki. Now they will be Ice One Kawasaki. So it's a complete different team, different personnel, I don't know what that means as far as uh, whether they run Showa or KYB or any of that stuff, you know, testing wise, parts wise, personnel wise, as far as working with new technicians, all those things would be great if he could sort that out in December, that would be ideal. And I'm sure there was a plan because their team manager of ice one is his name is Antti Perinen. He is, he's a great team manager. He's incredibly organized, structured. So I can promise you he had a plan in place and days mapped out and testing and all these things that are all going to have to get changed. And I I just know that was a big hit to them. Pretty devastating injury. Not as bad as it could have been. Definitely make sure we say that. But still, man, rough. That was a rough, rough deal uh, for Ice One Kawasaki. So hopefully uh, the, the injury is as I heard, just a tibia and maybe they don't even need surgery. You know, like you look at Christian Craig, he had kind of the same thing at Salt Lake, didn't need surgery. So let's hope uh, it's the same kind of deal for Fevra. Bogle, great job. Fourth overall. That's not so bad. Switched to Suzuki. He didn't look good in practice at all, my opinion, but I heard he had some bike issues and then they got it sorted out. So fourth overall, you got to be happy with that. Really, really nice job. And hopefully that gives him some confidence uh, going into this uh, Suzuki transition. I thought Chad Reed was impressive. You know, I, don't, I didn't expect a lot. You know, he, he only rode for a month leading into this. I'm sure he was tired. That's a lot of riding in two days when you haven't been doing much. You know, I'm sure he's incredibly sore today on Sunday, flying home, probably just going to sleep the whole way on that first class flight back to Charlotte. But good job for the old man. That's, that's pretty dang uh, impressive for him to be running around in the top five, six all day and all night. And trust me, if you know anything about Chad Reed, he was loving every minute of that. He loves being Chad Reed. And, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I just mean the accolades he's earned, the legendary status he's built for himself. He loves that. He loves being Chad Reed at the races. He loves you know, talking to the fans and having that attention and living in that life because he realizes those days are numbered now, if not over. Um, so I'm sure this was just a, a huge weekend for him. And I, I, I would imagine he soaked up every single minute of it and, uh, yeah, made some memories that he'll probably keep forever because as you get older, you realize you don't have many opportunities left and you start to, you know, you, you remember them more and more, much more than the early days when you, when it was all taken for granted, right? You just thought it would never end back then. You understand that it's ending now. So cool night for Chad, uh, Alex Martin, troll train. Eh, really tough one. Uh, didn't hear a lot of, from Steve Mathis about troll all weekend. And maybe it's a wake-up call, right? Maybe it's because I think you can get that wake-up call 
early enough in the off season to be like, man, I got some work to do. Like you think you're doing the right things. You're going through your boot camp. You're putting the practice days in. You're testing. You feel pretty good. And then you go to an event like this and you get your head kicked in and you're like, okay, I got to get a lot faster and I need this bike to be a lot better because that performance, like that level that I was just on all weekend, that ain't even close, right? So maybe it will be something that jump starts Amart so that he's much better come January, right? And that's really all you can ask if you have a horrible weekend like that is like, all right, well, this was a learning experience and now we got to build from it. And this was a big signal that we are not ready. And I had one like that at Bercy for myself going into the 2010 season. I'd come off of Montreal. I won Montreal in, uh, I think it was like October 1st of 09. Went to Bercy and my bike just didn't work. We had switched suspension companies and it just was way off. And the deal we had, we were not allowed to open the suspension at all. They were only allowed to open it because they had some proprietary valving in there. To me, I don't care, but that was the deal. So I got there and we weren't allowed to make any changes to the suspension. And it was just way, way, way too soft. And I could, I could barely ride it. So I was really up against it and I had a horrible weekend. All weekend, I just sucked. Very similar to how troll train was. You're just way off the pace, can't do anything about it. It's, it's embarrassing and you hate every second of it, but you suffer through it anyway. But it, it was a wake up call that I got to get this bike a lot better and, and, and quickly if I'm going to do the things that I'm expecting to do in the following season. So hopefully Alex can kind of learn from that experience. And, and I absolutely went through it at, at, you know, funny enough, the same event. The last note I have uh, for this show is on, um, Maxime Renault. So in the 250 class, Kyle Peters dominated, won all the races. Kevin Moran's got second. Great performance by Kevin. Really happy for him, even though he had to wear a different gear brand, which I wasn't happy about. But these things happen. Got to take a deep breath. Um, Kevin is very loyal to fly racing. He's actually someone I, I want to have work for fly racing. In a you know, once he's done racing, he's really smart. He has a marketing degree. So I had to just kind of push it aside because I was pissed that he wasn't wearing fly, but he rode great second overall. Good for him. Great kid. He does it the right way. Super respectful. And I'm happy for him. You know, this was his first race really overseas and in Paris and all those things. So good for him. Great performance. Uh, but then Maxime Renault, you know, if, for those of you who don't follow the MXGP series, he was your MX2 world champion, right? Really impressive. He's factory Yamaha for, you know, MX2 class. He had a great season. He won the series by a ton of points. Congratulations to him. Well, he comes to Paris, and I think he probably deep down, he thought he was going to win pretty easily. But listen, man, you don't have any Supercross experience. Like, it's not the same game. And I have this conversation with people all the time that are like, how do you think Hurlings would do? How do you think that uh, Tony Cairoli would do in Supercross? And I'm like, well, right now, if they just came over, they would get their head beaten in, right? They would get smoked, because they have zero experience, they don't know how to hit the whoops, they would probably crash their brains out trying too hard, just like Tim Geiser did at Monster Cup. That's to be expected. You can't just jump into somebody else's game and think you're going to be on the level. That's not how this works. So for Renault, yeah, he was all over the place, crashing off the track, you know, wasn't anywhere near the same speed as like Peters was. And, you know, Peters is like a top five to 10 Supercross guy. So to me, I thought that was kind of not eye-opening for me, but I think some people had their eyes open to 
how good some of the Supercross guys are in the U.S. You know, guys like Colt Nichols and Christian Craig and those guys, they are incredibly good at Supercross because they put so much emphasis on it. Maxime Renault, incredibly good at outdoors in the 250 class because they put so much time into it and so much emphasis on it. So uh, tough day, tough weekend for Renault. I'm sure it was probably very humbling. I don't think he had a great time. I would bet he left there really pissed off. I'm sure he got paid well. He is a world champion, but I don't think he had fun at all because he got beaten by guys he probably doesn't even know who they are. I would bet he's never heard of Kevin Morans. Maybe he's seen his name on the results before, but I can guarantee you he doesn't know what he looks like. So that, that's, that's tough. I've been there. I've gotten beaten by guys I've never heard of. It's not very much fun. Um, so it's whatever. It's a learning lesson. You know, we'll see how Renault does. The other note I wanted to add on that, Renault is moving up to the MXGP class next year. I think this is a terrible idea. I've been saying this for a few months. He should have stayed in the MX2 class. Get a nice contract from Yamaha. Make some money. You have leverage. You're the world champion. Stay down. Win races. Get bonus money. Get experience. Mature. Work on your skill set. And then when you are 23, move up. Why rush it? Have you looked at the MXGP class, go ask Ben Watson or any of these guys, Calvin Vlanderen or Adam Sterry, any of these guys have moved up recently, go ask them how the MXGP class is. They're probably going to say, holy crap, these guys are fast. Like, it's obvious. Like, you look how deep that class is. It's not a joke. So I'm very curious to see how Renault does next year. I think it was a mistake. I could be absolutely be proven wrong. Maybe Renault goes out there and running around in the top five all year. I just don't see it. I think they rushed it. I think Yamaha had a really tough year. You know, they, they reached to pay Koldenhoff a lot. And they had Jeremy Sewer, who was sick all year. And they just didn't get the results they wanted. So I think they kind of panicked and are forcing Renault up. Or I don't want to say forcing him, but they incentivized him to move up because they think that was going to help or save them. I just don't see that. I think it was a mistake for Yamaha. I think it was a mistake for Renault. And uh, I'm willing to go out on a limb and, and put that out there now with t- the risk of him making me look like a fool. That's okay. If you ever have a take or have an opinion, you are risking being completely wrong. So let's see what happens out there. So that's it for this week. Um, it, it was much longer than I intended. I just kind of wanted to touch on the race, but Touched on all kinds of things. I do want to thank the sponsors again really quickly. Pirelli Tires, Plum Creek Funding, Guts Racing, Fast Foundry, Works Connection, uh, Grandstone Boots, Pro Glow Wash. Check out that Pro Glow Wash. It is a power sports specific wash. And of course, Fly Racing. Thank you to all of them. And looking forward to 2021. We're about six weeks away from Anaheim 1. I will definitely be doing more shows between now and then. But... The countdown is on. We're past Thanksgiving. We're heading towards Christmas. And then, you know, once Christmas and New Year's gets here, it's, it's go time. I mean, guys are, you know, they're, they're basically in Anaheim one mode by then. So I appreciate listening. Thanks again and enjoy your weekend.